Good afternoon, Fremont. It's good to see you today on this beautiful afternoon. Uh, my name is Jeff, and I serve as the pastor of the North Expression of the Hallows Church, but uh, it is always my privilege to be back with you in Fremont in this way as we open our Bibles together and continue uh, this journey through the book of Ephesians. It's been a good journey. I'm looking forward to uh, continuing along that path today in chapter 5, verses 8 to 14. But um, as is often good for us, I think, let us just for a moment take a step back and remind ourselves of, of how we got here, how we got to this point. Over the first three chapters of this letter, Paul has been up in the clouds much of the time, soaring along at, at high altitude. He's been giving us really a very spectacular view of the gospel. He's been exploring very high and very beautiful theological truths uh, about the gospel and what it says about God and what it says and means for us as individuals and as the church. He's in fact been telling us all about God's plan and purpose in history to call us to himself in Christ, to reconcile us to himself through Christ, and ultimately to undo and to redo, to, uh, to remake and to recreate everything that is broken in this world and, and in our hearts. Then in, uh, beginning in chapter 4, Paul kind of comes down beneath the clouds. He begins descending from these theological heights down into real life, down into the nitty-gritty of practical uh, Christian living. And what Paul has been saying again and again along the way is that because of all these truths he's been laying out, because of all these things that God has done for you in Christ, you should be looking differently, you should be living differently, and you should be loving differently than the culture and the world around you. And if you're not looking and living and loving differently as a result of everything that's been done for you by God in Christ, then something, something is off. Something is not uh, registering. Uh, and, and you need to examine yourself. You need to check yourself, Paul's been saying. And along the way, we've seen Paul using argument after argument to kind of build his case. He's been using one image after another to, to build and to bolster his case and to stir the hearts and minds of the Ephesians in, in these sorts of directions. He gave us an image of the church as a body, right? One body with many interconnected and interdependent parts doing together what could never be done apart. He gave us the image of our old identity as something that's been taken off, and our new identity as something that's been put on, like, like a coat or a garment of some sort. And Paul is going to give us another argument. He's going to give us another image to, to think about today. And the way that Paul has been going about all this is actually very instructive for us. Paul has been showing us something very important here in, in what he's been doing. And it's, it's something you may not notice unless you do take a step back. Because when you step back, if you're paying attention, what you, what you see is you begin to see a pattern in what Paul is doing in this letter a pattern that is going to continue today. Again and again, we see Paul, what we see Paul doing is, is laying out truth, laying out gospel truth, and then kind of arguing with the Ephesian Christians about it and challenging them to examine themselves and to pay attention to how they were thinking and, and how they were living in light of that truth. Over and over in this letter, Paul lays out truth. He lays truth out for the, uh, before the Ephesians, he lays truth out before you and I, and then he kind of argues with us about that truth, and he argues with us about its implications for our lives. And the reason he does that, I think, is because Paul wants you and he wants me to 
engage in the arguments too. He wants us to kind of argue about this too. It's interesting. I think Paul has been showing us something in this letter. He's been showing us in this letter that, that one of the keys to living the Christian life effectively is that you're getting better and better at, at winning arguments. And he's been modeling for us again and again how to do that. Anybody with any level of self-awareness knows that many arguments take place in your head over the course of a day. And perhaps the most important question we need to be asking ourselves as Christian is, Christians is, uh, uh, who is winning those arguments? Think about it. What arguments have been taking place in your head and in your heart this month and, and this week? And, and who's been winning them? Have the voices of culture been winning? Is the voice of your flesh perhaps winning? Is the voice of the accuser and the deceiver, our enemy, Satan, winning? Or is the voice of God, is the voice of truth winning the arguments? There are many voices all around us and even within us vying for our attention and for our allegiance. And one of the main things I think Paul would say that, that will help you to become a maturing Christian and a, a flourishing Christian is that, that you're learning more and more how to, how to argue with yourself over what is true and what is not, and, and you're winning the key arguments. And what will make you a, a mess as a Christian, Paul would say, is that you're either checked out and not engaging in the arguments at all, or else you are, and you're losing more of them than you're winning. In today's passage, Paul is giving us another argument, another image to consider. He's going to lay out certain truths and then argue with us about them. He's going to argue with us about them and about why those truths should be, should be changing our lives. He's going to model for us again today how to contend for the truth in our lives and be changed by it. In this passage, Paul starts talking about darkness and light and he has some very interesting th things to uh, say to us to consider about this as, as Christians and as the church. Look at what he says in verse 8. He says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. And so you kind of see the pattern here straight away. Paul lays out truth. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And then what does he say? He says, Live then. Live then as children of light. You were once darkness, but now you are light. Live accordingly. First of all, we're talking about spiritual darkness and spiritual light here. And the Bible tells us that God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. And the Bible tells us too that darkness represents really ignorance and error and evil, darkness in the Bible, represents the deceiving and enslaving powers of sin and Satan and death. And notice Paul does not say in verse 8 that you were in darkness, though you were. He says that you were darkness. So before you put your trust in Jesus, you were not only living in darkness, darkness was living in you. It was at your very center. But now, Paul says, you are light you were once darkness, but now you are light. It's a rather abrupt statement, actually. And one of the th first things I think Paul is reminding us of here, one of the truths that he's, he's laying out for us to consider and to contend with today is that, 
is that the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not, it's not a matter of degree. Paul says you are either darkness or you are light. It's not possible to be kind of a Christian or sort of a Christian or part Christian and part something else. You're either a Christian or you're not, Paul says. There's no in-between. What Paul is saying is that there are two spiritual realms, two and only two, and you're, you're either in one or you're in the other. One leads to eternal separation from God. One leads to eternal fellowship with God. Many people, and even some churches will say, what, a, what it means to be a Christian is to be a, a moral person, to be a, a good person, to be a nicer person than most. But right here and elsewhere, Paul says that fundamentally, being a Christian is not about being better. It's not about being nice. It's about being new. It's about moving from one spiritual realm to another. It's about moving from darkness to light. We see similar imagery in other places in the Bible, too. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says, uh, Give thanks to the Father who has enabled you, enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. So two kingdoms, one, one of darkness, one of light. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says this. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may, may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his, his marvelous light. And so the Apostle Peter, too, says you were darkness, but now you are light. And, and how does he say that happened? He says that happened because God made it happen. He called you. He, he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, and you heard him. You heard him, and, and you responded. And so I want to ask you, have you done that? If you haven't done that, I hope you'll be listening for his voice today. And moving from darkness to light, it's a very decisive movement from one realm to the other, and it's a very decisive moment in time when that movement happens. In verse 8, it says, you were once darkness, but now you're light. There's a certain pivot point there, but now. And Paul uses this language actually quite a bit when talking about the changes that happen uh, when you first put your trust in the gospel. You were one thing then, but now you are something else. You are something new. You were once under the law, but now you're under grace, he would say elsewhere. But he says here, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. In fact, for Paul, to be a Christian is to, and to move from darkness to light, there, there really has to be, there must be a but now moment, a, a but now experience. And so what is yours? How would you describe it? I love people sharing how that happened and when that happened and what that was like to move from darkness to light. It happens in so many different ways, so many beautiful ways. It happens in different ways at different times in different people. And it does us much good, I think, to remember that. Since we're talking about moving from darkness to light, let's talk about a sunrise for a moment. Think about this with me. There's a moment each day, isn't there, when the sun comes up and when, when night becomes day. There's a moment when the sun at your spot in the world first 
shows itself uh, on the horizon. And at that moment, when it does, a line has been crossed from night to day. But exactly how that moment, how that sunrise is experienced by you depends. It depends, doesn't, on the conditions. If there's very heavy cloud cover right up until the moment of dawn, but then the cloud cover breaks loose just as the sun is coming up, it's possible to go from very pitch darkness to very bright and dazzling light. On the other hand, what if it's perfectly clear and there's no cloud cover at all? What happens then? What happens is there will be some light, uh, there will be some signs of light, some signs of light showing up on the horizon ahead of time before the sun actually rises. There will be streaks of dawn before the sun actually crosses over the horizon. There will be hints of it. But then all of a sudden the sun comes up and it's, it's fully light out. Or what if it's a very foggy morning, the cloud cover is thick and heavy and low and it stays thick and low and, and the fact is you just can't really tell at all exactly what moment the sun actually came up over the horizon. Things just got a little bit brighter and a little bit brighter. You don't know when the sun came up, you just know it did come up because you couldn't see and, and now you can. You couldn't see and now you can see. Even though it may still be a bit foggy, it's, it's light out now and you can see. And so it's possible to experience the sunrise in many uh, different ways. But the truth is the actual moment uh, at which that line is crossed from night to day, it, it does happen in a moment's time. And in much the same way, the Bible teaches us that some of uh, you may have, ex have an experience of becoming a Christian that's like the, the heavy clouds breaking up just before dawn. There was no previous sign of light at all. There was complete darkness, and then all of a sudden, bright and dazzling light. That's actually what happened to the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 9, verse 3, listen to what it says. It says, as Paul traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. And that light was so bright, it knocked Paul off his horse. It knocked him to the ground, and it blinded him for a few days. For others, becoming a Christian feels a lot more like a gradual process. A little bit of light ahead of time, and then a little bit more, and a, a little bit more, and then all of a sudden you look around and you know, you know the sun came up because you're able to see everything differently. You know it happened sometime between March and November of 2008, but you couldn't say for sure exactly what day or what month it actually happened. That line was crossed. For every one of you, if you're a Christian, there was a point in time when you moved from darkness to light, where the light came on and the light came in and, and he called you into his light. You didn't have it, but now you have it. You were darkness, but now you are light. Now, some of you may ask, how, how do I know for sure? How do I know for sure that's happened to me? I think Paul tells us in this passage, he tells us what that should look like in verses 9 and 10, and he tells, that, tells us also what that really uh, shouldn't look like in verses 11 and 12. And he says one of the main ways you know, that, know that's happened to you is that you start, you start caring about things you didn't used to care about. You start thinking in new ways. You start living in new ways. You start seeing things differently. Paul first told us about uh, moving from darkness to light. Now he's going to tell us about living as children of light. And Paul tells us straight away what, the, uh, what children of light do in verses 9 and 10. 
And what he says is he says they, they test. They test what is pleasing to the Lord. It says, live, live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. So when you move from the realm of darkness to the realm of light, you start caring about things you didn't used to care about. You start thinking in new ways. You become less and less concerned about pleasing yourself, and you become more and more concerned about pleasing God. When you move from darkness to light, you begin to naturally desire to do what pleases God. This was Paul's ambition and joy in life, to please God, and he he cherished that same ambition for his Christian friends. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says that uh, no matter where you are or what you're doing, make it your aim. Make it your aim, he says, to be pleasing to God. But to do that, to do that, to be pleasing to God, you, you need to be paying attention, don't you? To live as children of light means you, you're living an examined life. And so you analyze, you consider, you, you test, you argue about it, you ask yourself, what am I doing here and why am I doing it? Am I testing what is pleasing to the Lord? And so you're paying attention to what you're thinking and to how you're living. In fact, in the verse immediately following this passage, right after in this passage, Paul saying, uh, you were once darkness, but now you're light, live as children of light, Paul says in the very next verse, after today's passage, in verse 15, he says, pay careful attention then to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, he says, but understand what the Lord's will is. And so as children of light, you're paying careful attention, you test your heart, you test your motives, you test your actions, you test your lives. And what are you testing them for? What does Paul tell us is pleasing to the Lord? Paul tells us in verse 9, the fruit of the light. The fruit of the light is what grows out of the light. Fruit is an outward expression of an inner light. And what is that fruit, according to Paul? Three things, goodness, righteousness, and truth. Now, uh, think about this for a moment with me. First, let's talk about truth. Let's work backwards in a way. If you were darkness, but now you are light, and the fruit of the light is truth, what that means is that when you were in darkness, you could not see the truth. You were uh, deceived. You were confused about reality itself and your, your place in it. Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 35, he says, the one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. In a dark room, you can't see very much. You can't see where you're going. There are distortions and heavy shadows. It's, it's hard to see how things really are. It's, it's hard to see. You can't really see any potential dangers. One of the things the Bible tells us about the human heart is that it's darkened until the Spirit of God comes in and turns on the light. And when he does, when that light goes on, you begin seeing things that you couldn't see before. In fact, when the light comes on, what you see as true, what you see as truth changes. Truth is made visible 
by the light. And things get conspicuous in the light. You get conspicuous. And you find yourself seeing things differently about yourself, about God, and about his gospel too. When the light comes on, you start to see that the Bible, the word of God, the truth of God is the only light we have. And apart from that, and apart from him and his self-disclosure to us, there is no light and there is no hope. And so as children of light, we learn the truth, we study the truth, we, uh, we test what is true and what is not, and we, we argue with ourselves about it when we need to. The fruit of the light is truth, seeing more and more clearly what is true and what is not, and allowing that truth to challenge us and to change us and to guide us in our lives. But Paul also says the fruit of the light is righteousness in verse 9. When you move from darkness to light, you, start, you begin to see something else differently too. In a sense, a Christian is somebody who has finally said, I see that the main problem in my life is, is me. The main problem is me and what I've been uh, centering my life on. And friends, to see that, to really see that requires light coming on, coming in from the outside and, and helping you to see that. One way to think about that, one way to think about this word uh, righteousness, it's really what you're centering your life on and what you're looking to to make everything right in, in your heart and in your life. It's what you're looking to to fill you up, to make you feel like your life matters, to make you feel like you matter. That's your righteousness. You're looking to something or someone for it. Everybody is. And when you move from darkness to light, Paul says that, that more and more you begin to see the futility of looking to anyone or anything other than Christ to try to satisfy those, those longings deep within you. And when you realize that, when the light comes on and when the light comes in, it, it can be quite liberating because you can stop looking to yourself. You can give up the notion that it's all up to you to make everything right in your life. And so you can stop looking to your success and your uh, achievements for your value. You can stop looking to your spouse or your kids to complete you. You can stop looking to your good looks or your good deeds to give you a sense of importance. You can stop looking to the attention and approval of others to, uh, to fill you up. When that light comes on, you're able to stop centering your life on the wrong things, on fleeting and flimsy things, and you're able to start centering your life on eternal things on the person and work of Jesus and on what is pleasing to the Lord. The light comes in from the outside. It begins to, to show you these things. And as it does, you find that you're able to loosen your grip on many things in this life. And because of that, you're less and less controlled by them. The fruit of the light, receiving Christ's righteousness rather than trying to achieve and manufacture your own. Next, Paul goes from telling us that we should be testing what is pleasing to the Lord in verses 9 and 10 to telling us that we should be exposing what is dark in verses 11 and 12. As children of light, we should be exposing the fruitless works of darkness, Paul says. Verse 11, don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. People living in the dark don't really like to have the light shining on them and exposing what they do. 
In John chapter 12, verse 46, Jesus said, I have come, into, I have come as light into the world so that, so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. But Jesus also said that most people uh, prefer darkness. In John chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus said, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world And people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. So the light makes things visible. It exposes people and they don't like it. And to be perfectly honest, we don't don't like it either. Frederick Buechner said that if there is a terror about darkness because we cannot see. There is also a terror about light because we can see. There is a terror about light because much of what we see in the light about ourselves, we would rather not see. And we would rather not have be seen. There is something about the fallen human condition and the fallen human heart that cannot help but hide And this impulse to hide, it is not learned. It is innate. We were born with it because because of what went down in the Garden of Eden with Adam Adam and Eve. There's a pastor and author named Dallas Willard. He tells the story of a a little two-and-a-half-year-old girl playing in the uh, backyard with her nana. And she got into trouble one day for playing in the mud. She made a very big mess, but, but she enjoyed it. She very much enjoyed playing in the mud. Her nana cleaned her up, gave her a good talking to, and the, and the girl said, okay, Nana, I understand. The next day they were out there again, and, and the Nana was doing some gardening while the little girl was running around and playing. And the Nana says that she heard her granddaughter's voice at one point calling out to her from the other side of the yard saying this, Nana, don't look at me, okay? Don't look at me, Nana, Okay? Nana played along for the first two times. She said, okay, sweetie. But then the third time, she looked over and saw that her granddaughter was, once again, a very, very muddy mess. Even the tender soul of a little child shows us how necessary it is to us as human beings that we be unobserved in our wrongdoing. Don't look at me, Nana, okay? We often choose hiddenness still too, don't we? It may well be that out of all the prayers ever spoken, the quietest one whispered and the one we least acknowledge making is simply this. Don't look at me, God, okay? Don't look at me while I'm doing this, God, okay? Those were the very first words, in fact, spoken by Adam after the fall. God came... uh, to walk with them in the garden, and he said, he called out, where are you? And Adam answered, I heard you, but I was afraid because I was naked. And what did he say? So I hid. Adam was exposed, and he hid. He covered himself, essentially saying, don't look at me, God, okay? Paul is writing these words to Christians, to the Ephesian Christians who were light, And he's saying to them, don't walk in darkness. And the reason he's saying that to them is because many of them were still walking in darkness. We know that from other parts of this letter too. But if they were light, if you and I are light, if we've moved from darkness to light, why do we still struggle so much? 
Why does it seem so hard to live fully in the light as children of light? I said earlier that moving from darkness to light, it's either or, it's all or nothing. There's no, there's no halfway. And so on the one hand, there is a decisive movement when you cross over into the light. But isn't it still true? Isn't it true that even, even when the sun is out, there are still many, many shadows around? Think about that sunrise illustration again with me for a moment. When the sun comes up, once it's up, it's fully up. But it's not until midday, it's not until high noon that all the shadows are gone. When the sun comes up, the sky is totally light, but, but until the sun is directly overhead, until the sun is fully over you, there are still many, many shadows and shades of gray down at ground level. And so what we need to hold in tension here and keep in balance as Christians is that when you cross over from darkness to light, it is a done deal. It's an all or nothing thing. But at the same time, there's very much a process to follow. You are able to see Jesus differently in the light. You're able to see yourself differently. But at the very same time, you're able to also see ever more clearly the sin and the darkness still clinging to you in this life. And at times, if you're not paying close attention, if you're not testing, you may find yourself lurking and lingering in the shadows. And so what are these works of darkness that Paul is talking about? We know what these are because Paul was just talking about them in the passage just before this one. Leading up to this passage, what was Paul talking about? He was talking about crudeness and foul language. He was talking about sexual sin. He was talking about greed. And in talking about greed, I think he was talking about people who, who hunger, people who hunger for more, people who, who hunger for, for more wealth, for more power, for more pleasure, for more attention, for more approval. These are some of the works of darkness Paul is talking about, and they all center around self. Now, there is indeed a sense in which there are works of darkness and evil all around us in our city and in our world that need to be called out and addressed. We need to be calling out and exposing uh, systemic works of darkness and fighting against them. And, and we do that in various ways through various ministries here within our church. But here, remember who Paul is writing to. Paul is writing to the Ephesians. And I think Paul is talking more here about fighting against the works of darkness that are that are festering in our own hearts more than what, uh, what's going on out there in the world. Because if we don't, if we don't fight against those, we will never be light in the midst of darkness because we will look no different than that darkness. Friends, if I feel like someone criticizes me and I can't get it out of my head for a couple of days, I keep going over it again and again, wondering, wondering if they're right. If they were right, then I'll be mad at uh, me. If they were wrong, then I'll be mad at them. But either way, I'm going to be mad, right? And so what is that? That's darkness. First of all, it's going back into the old approach of just centering uh, on the wrong things, thinking the most important thing is my reputation and what people think and, and, and think about me and, and say about me. It's looking to myself once again to, to make things right. 
It's also darkness in that I'm forgetting the truth. I'm forgetting the truth that it's God's acceptance of me. It's God's verdict on me that matters more than what other people think or say. And that's just a simple example. But if you think about works of darkness in that way, which I think we should, what are some other works of darkness that you may be participating in that, that need to be exposed? Could it be bitterness or worry? Could it be unforgiveness or pride or anger? Could it be lust or greed or self-centeredness? Works of darkness will cling to you if you're not careful. And if you, if you don't expose them and bring them into the light, if you don't do that, they will eventually begin to control you. But the light of God, the truth of God's word can expose each one of those works of darkness. It has something, in fact, transforming to say about each one of those. And Paul, and Paul is saying, use it. Use the truth. Test everything. Argue over it. Expose the darkness, expose the deception, expose the lies. If you're not doing that, you're going to find yourself stumbling and struggling in the shadows rather than living in the light. And it is only as we get out of the shadows and expose these works of darkness in our hearts and in our lives, and it's only as we grow in the fruit of the light that we'll ever be able to make God's grace visible in the midst of darkness, which is our final point Verse 13, making God's grace visible. Everything exposed by the light is made visible. For what makes everything visible is light. Therefore, it is said, get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So Paul is again talking about the light exposing things, and this time he's talking about how the light uh, makes things visible, makes us visible. This whole passage has something to say to us as a church in the city of Seattle about being, about being visible, about being a visible presence. There is a lot of darkness and spiritual confusion around us, and we are to be a light in the midst of that darkness, a, a visible light that people hopefully cannot miss. But that is not always easy, is it? For the Ephesians, that apparently was not happening. They were looking and living like the culture around them. Perhaps that's why you see this sort of wake-up call in the final verse. It says, get up, sleeper. Wake up. Come out of the shadows and show yourself to be God's people. And God, Christ will shine on you. Now, I didn't mention this earlier, but that word expose, to expose darkness as we've been talking about, that word expose, it does not mean so much to denounce as much as it means to persuade with evidence or to convince, to, to win over. And so there is a sense in which Paul has been saying that what we need to do as children of light and as the church is to persuade the darkness, to convince the darkness about the light, about Jesus, by somehow being a light that reflects him within that darkness in fact, we're called to a very interesting balance as a Christian in our attitudes and in our stance toward darkness. You are light, Paul said today. You were once darkness, but now you are light. He says also, don't participate with darkness. But the Bible also says you are not to withdraw from darkness either. 
You are not to withdraw or isolate. Rather, we are to engage. We are to persuade and, and convince. We're to shine and to show God's grace at work in our lives by putting it on display through our lives. My hope and prayer is that we would be a church that does that, that there would be a contrast, a visible contrast between uh, us and the world around us that would, that would be unmistakable, a contrast that would cause people to uh, take notice and ask questions why we're living the ways that we're living. Let me read you a few words from a New York Times editorial written by a guy named Nicholas Kristof a few, few years back. This is a piece about, that he wrote about evangelical Christians. He began by noting uh, how so many Christian leaders and Christian leaders' lives seemed so hypocritical, which is indeed true. But that's where most stories like this stop, too. But Christoph went on. He went on to write these words. He said, but in all of my reporting on poverty, disease, and oppression across this planet, I've seen so many other Christians doing incredible good. He said, Christians are disproportionately likely to donate to charities and churches. More important, go to the front lines at home or abroad in the battles against hunger, malaria, homelessness, human trafficking, disaster relief, or genocide. And some of the kindest and bravest people you meet are Christians who are truly living out their faith. I'm not particularly religious myself, he says, but I stand in awe of those I've seen selflessly serving and risking their lives in this way. And get this, he says, and it sickens me to see that faith mocked at New York cocktail parties. And so Kristoff, he, he saw the contrast, the visible contrast that was created as God's people lived out their lives as, as children of light. And it, and it affected him, didn't it? It affected him enough to, to write this editorial. Now, I'm, I'm certain that uh, many of the cultural elites that he often rubbed shoulders with would have preferred that he hadn't written it, but he did. And who knows how... God might use those seeds that have been planted in the mind of Nicholas Kristof along his journey in life as he observed all of these things around him. Friends, would we be a people and a church who make God's grace visible to anyone who may be watching, and would we do so by the ways that we live and by the ways that we love, by the ways that we serve, whether uh, those people who are watching agree with us or not and whether they might mock us or not? Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 says, uh, You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. We are to be a light, a, a lamp, a city on a hill shining brightly before those around us. But let's not forget, it's actually possible for a light to shine too brightly. If you shine a high-intensity spotlight at people, they will recoil. They will look away. It's possible to come at people and hit people with cold truth that is detached from kindness and grace. It's possible to denounce rather than persuade, to condemn rather than convince. And they, they will recoil. They will look away. I think it's also possible to be the type of light in our city that is 
so faint and so dim that nobody even notices it's there. Nobody can really see it. It's having no real effect. It's not really shining before anybody. But it's also possible to be a light that is steady, that is consistent, that is, is glowing. And that's my prayer for us. Let us be that kind of light in the ways that we love one another, in the ways that we love our neighbors, in the ways that we love our city. Let us do that in the ways that we're willing to give rather than take, to serve rather than be served, to love the unlovable, and to come to the defense of the defenseless. Let us do that in the ways we are self-surrendering and self-sacrificing rather than being self-serving and self-seeking. And would all these things be a light, as a, a steady and visible light, in, steady and visible light, not invisible light, in our city, shining before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. You were darkness, but now you are light. Live then as children, children of light so that others might see the light too. Let's pray.